0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a leading provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit solaredge.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. We haven't yet hit summer, but we're already smashing more climate and weather records. We will talk about the barrage of alarming climate news over the last couple of months to kick off the show... Then, new data shows that renewables are on their way to overtaking fossil fuels in the electric sector. Is the development as positive as it seems? Finally, we'll talk transmission. A couple new projects in the U.S. illustrate how to build new lines effectively to support carbon-free energy. In Washington, D.C., it is Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions and our regular co-host. Hey, Catherine, how are
1: you? Hi, I'm great. And technically, today I'm in Crystal City at the 1776 uh venue here it's really nice
0: out in san diego getting up early for us today it is jigger Shaw with generate capital hello jigger how are you
2: doing well i'm happy to get up early every day for this beautiful weather
0: well i hope that uh good weather has you in a good mood it sounds like it because uh we start off today's show with a series of pretty dire developments Thirty years ago, last week, a congressional committee held a two-day hearing on climate change. In June of 1986, scientists didn't have the sophisticated measurement tools and supercomputer models that they do today, but they did have a lot of data showing that greenhouse gases were steadily warming the planet, and that failure to curb those emissions would bring dire consequences. Three decades later, this is playing out with alarming accuracy. In the last few months, we've seen a slew of research showing that the planet has a worsening fever. March, April, and May were the hottest on record, and scientists now say there's a 99% chance that 2016 will be the hottest we've ever seen. In April, 12% of Greenland's ice sheet had already melted, breaking previous records by a month. In May, Arctic sea ice fell to its lowest ever extent, following a winter where ice formation was at its lowest level since the 70s. Meanwhile, many regions of Africa and Asia are experiencing extreme drought and record-breaking floods have gripped Western Europe and the American South. This is just an abridged list I could go on. Catherine, um how do you personally process all of this? There's you know, the last couple of months have just brought this overwhelming series of news developments and research, and I read so much of it, but at some point I just find myself <laughs> stuck in despair. Does it impact you the same way?
1: Yeah, it's definitely terrifying. But if you look, and it's also discouraging that if you look back to that hearing where Senator Chafee, a Republican from Rhode Island, and he was chair of Senate Environment and Public Works, he held this hearing. And remember, he's Lincoln Chafee's father, Lincoln Chafee, who ran for president, who's run for president a few times. Um, He was very much of an environmentalist, and he brought in many witnesses, including James Hansen, and the newly elected Congressman Al Gore, whom we have known about for a long time. And at that time, they all said, this is really important. Chafee himself rejected the idea that this uncertainty of science should stall any public response at all. This was 1986. Now, we had really known since about 1979 that this was happening. In 1986, I remember my cousin, who is an oceanographer, saying, oh, yeah, we conducted an experiment and it is happening That was, And it was certain in his mind that climate change was happening. And we've done so little since then on addressing the core issue. Now, we've done a lot of things to move the markets on clean energy, but we really haven't taken a decision as a nation to address climate.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind here is that the Republican Party is disintegrating before our eyes. It's entirely possible that the the Republican Party that we know about, that Lincoln Chafee was a part of, won't exist after this election cycle. Um, and largely it's due to the same thing that is hurting their positions on climate change, which is that, um, that there is this feeling that the world around them is changing so rapidly that it's becoming unrecognizable. And that is basically what the answer to climate change really is, right? I mean, it's moving away from coal, it's moving away from fossil fuels, it's moving towards a more um, harmonious lifestyle with the planet, um, and those are major changes from what we've done over the last hundred and you know fifty years of of really using all the planet's resources to live beyond our means.
1: Yeah, the Catholic leadership just came out. It's a year from the Pope's encyclical on climate, and they came out and renewed their call to action for clean energy. Yeah, I mean,
0: the, the, you know, the religious right. I think you're starting to see some of them galvanize around climate change and the broader environmental movement, invest in solar projects and so forth. But largely, I think you're right, Jigger. you've tapped into something here, and that that is the shift away from fossil fuels and toward renewable energy is part of this uncertainty that is fueling the politics supporting Donald Trump. The people who ha- are chronically unemployed or underemployed, the people who live in these underserved communities, um folks who don't feel like they're getting a fair shot many of these same communities are former or fading energy communities and so this is all part of that that same problem and you know that's an important trend to recognize and and I think it's always been there clearly but this election cycle in particular highlights how bad it is and how it's influencing you know the modern weird politics that we have today.
1: Yeah. And the folks who are moderate, the Republicans who are moderate, who actually are great to work with on climate issues are most at risk of losing their seats.
2: Well, that that is the challenge. And, and then there's the macro piece, too. Right. So it's one thing to say that the Republicans are, you know, are, are gone really conservative. But on the other side, if you talk to the finance leaders, whether it's, you know, Larry Summers or Tim Geithner or some of these other folks on the macroeconomic story, they're also pretty scared. Right. Because when we left the old standard under Richard Nixon, we went on to the oil standard. I mean, the reason the dollar is so strong is because the, the dollar is the mandatory currency of oil. So when you think about all the tax revenue that it produces and all the other benefits that that those fossil fuels produce for countries in Africa and other places that have extractive industries, I don't think these folks can fathom how to have similar revenues going to the government on solar and wind and other technologies and so you know there are these macro issues at play with we're in a historic global slowdown and you know and I think that so I don't know that I want to just blame the republicans for this I think many democratic economists are also against doing things at scale because they don't actually understand how the U.S. continues to keep its leadership in the world?
1: Well, I actually think there are two really good positive points, one of which is this president has taken a huge position on climate. So he has uh, shown national and international leadership to try to get, reduce emissions through public policy that he has influenced over through the Clean Power Plan. But the other thing is that over the course of these last many, many years, 30 years, we have been – Investing in clean energy technologies, and so now they are cheaper. We have more intelligence and more data, and more systems that we can use to do more quickly. So, we've we've moved forward on technology, regardless of a lot of the policy, national policy implications.
0: Yeah, and and as I've thought about the politics and uh, how back we've how far back we've stepped, one of the things that does bring me some hope is um, you know the, the Montreal Protocol that was signed in 1987 that uh, was designed to phase out CFCs and fix the hole in the ozone layer. And this was an extraordinary agreement among countries, and it was uh, an, an enormous success. And so the climate is a much bigger challenge. The targets that countries outlined last December are not nearly enough to stabilize carbon emissions. But it's an important start. And as I look at international agreements like the Montreal Protocol, where we banded together to quickly address a major problem, the fact that the U.S. is signing on to this and doing everything it can to support the international effort is a good sign, right? So we can't be completely down about the politics. There are a lot of good things that, uh, even though they're incremental, get us moving to where we need to be. So I try to like think about that and try to look at some of the good historical stories, like the formation of the EPA, like the Montreal Protocol and say, we can do this. You know, it's very possible in the US, despite the politics moving against this issue, we can do this. So, you know, that's I'm, what I tell
2: myself. No, I mean, look, I'm, I'm certainly an optimist and I do think we can do it. I don't know that we can do it through mitigation. I think it's going to require geoengineering to be able to stave off the worst Impacts of climate change um, for most of the people who live on the planet, but I do think we've made big strides on the geoengineering side as well.
0: What interests you most on the geoengineering side? This is a whole different, big, hairy topic that I want to address. What is interesting to you, or what, you know, what what techniques are interesting to you?
2: Well, I just think that when you think about where we are on the mitigation curve, um, you know, what the scientists are saying is that we're not even close to stabilizing climate emissions in the time frame necessary. And so what that means is that we're going to have to, if we want to stave off the worst impacts of climate adaptation, um, we're going to have to, um, you know, use solar radiation management, you know, basically simulating Mount Pinatubo, right? Or, you know, some scientists in Asilomar were saying that we need to actually take all the limestone that's in southern Florida, dig it up and stick it into the ocean to help, you know, manage um, the pH levels in the ocean so we can continue to support sea life. I mean, these are pretty big freaking ideas. And and not all of them are actually are very technologically sophisticated. Um, but they are going to be things that we're going to have to work on pretty soon um, if we're going to stave off the worst impacts. There are you know,
0: conventional technologies like carbon capture and sequestration. And the couple of years that I went to the international climate negotiations, there were a number of organizations there advocating for a really strong international push for CCS because they say, no, this is not just about stabilizing emissions. We have to continually decrease emissions and we need to go carbon negative if we're truly going to meet the 2 degree C level, which, you know, no one thinks we're going to meet. So...
1: Well, we have yet to have CCS work in this country. So until we can make that work and figure it out, we sure as heck better deploy as much renewable energy, as much energy efficiency, demand response, things that we know work um, and use all the data that we have uh, available through all these smart projects to be able to get things deployed.
2: Yeah, but think about how energizing it would be, right? If we had another race between SpaceX and Jeff Bezos' effort and Richard Branson's effort, to pursue geoengineering. It would be a whole new level of excitement. You can, might even be able to get the Koch brothers excited about that. Yeah, um, I'm not an expert in geoengineering, but th- there is, of
0: course, a lot of debate around many of these untested techniques and what they would do to the chemistry and the atmosphere. I want to be careful about how much we espouse geoengineering, but I'm starting to grapple with this as well. I used to be mostly against it, um, well, not really against it, but I, you know i wasn't I believed that renewable energy, energy efficiency, nuclear could scale up to meet the problem. but when you look at the enormity of the problem and you see this onslaught of news and you realize how dire the problem is i am I am more and more supportive of geoengineering absolutely I mean, we have to have it the, in our arsenal
2: The psychology of all this to me is fascinating, right because basically the whole concept of geoengineering is that human beings have the ability to, you know, sort of terraform the planet in ways in which, um, you know, support human life. And I think the opposite point of view is that, you know, that we shouldn't be so bold as to think that we know what we're doing and that we really need to cut back, right? That we need to do more with less. We need to become more in harmony with the planet. We have to stop using, you know, seven planets worth of energy, you know, in the United States. And, um, those are two diametrically opposed viewpoints. It's going to be really interesting to see how the, the psychology plays out. Time to take a little
0: break here and talk about our sponsor, Solar Edge. Solar PV systems, they're not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal, they now have brains. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It is an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring, and now also batteries and home load management devices. What's the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems? The inverter. On the horizon is a future where the smart Solar Edge inverter controls a smart home connected to the grid and to the cloud that controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances. Smart PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage. And this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy, visit solaredge.com. Let's talk about some good news, shall we? In the spirit of this week's theme, though, we'll add in some potentially bad news as well. In its latest report on the world energy system, Bloomberg New Energy Finance projects that renewables will overtake fossil fuels in terms of new capacity over the next two decades. And by 2025, fossil generation will peak globally. By 2040, we'll see $2 trillion invested in fossil fuels. Over that same period, we'll see $8 trillion invested in renewables. Lots of good trends in this report to unpack. Jager, I'm betting you were not surprised at all about the surge in renewables. Was there anything that jumped out at you from this report or you thought was particularly noteworthy?
2: Well, at the same time that this report came out, BP came out with their report and said that that the capacity of renewable energy that was added in 2015 was capable in 2016 to meet 100% of all growth in electricity usage. Um, so that's a first milestone too, right? That that we could meet 100% of all growth in electricity consumption from clean energy sources on an annual basis. So we're no longer digging the hole deeper, uh, which I think is amazing. And And look, I do think that this was something that's 40 years in the making, and I think um, it's a really impressive feat that we were able to accomplish that. Um, You know, the, the funny thing is, is that, to me, is that all of this effort was started by the Arab oil crises in the 1970s, and we still haven't done much of anything to tackle transportation. I do want to talk about transportation emissions. For
0: the first time since the late 70s, transportation emissions are higher than electricity emissions in the U.S., so we're making progress in the electric sector, but in the transpor- transportation sector, even though we have new energy efficiency standards that were signed into law by the Obama administration, we are not seeing much progress. And uh, this is due to you know pent-up demand for new vehicles after the financial crisis. You have a lot of people driving more miles. You have people buying bigger automobiles. And, of course, that is fueled by low oil prices. So I don't think a lot of people thought this dynamic would would happen the way it did because it was looking like after the financial crisis that we were seeing a trend toward fewer miles driven, toward fewer auto- automobiles being purchased. And now that it has been reversed due to low oil prices. So that's a particularly noteworthy trend and goes to what you've been saying, Jigger. You know, we've, Almost won in the electric sector, but we are very far from winning in the transportation sector.
1: Yeah, this report from the Frontier Group that came out recently said that there are – we do have tools at our disposal, of course, to, um, to reduce by 90 percent uh, all of these uh, – the way we use transportation. So increasing walkable developments, putting tolls on roads, making more bike and walk routes, better public transport – EVs, uh, self-driving or autonomous vehicles, and then the shared economy with things like Lyft and Uber. So we do have ways to do that. The issue is that there are still a lot of public policies that need to be put into place to incentivize them.
0: Yeah. And just a quick shout out to Brad Plumer of Vox, who wrote a great story about this shift in the electric and transportation sector, and how transportation emissions are now slightly greater than electric sector emissions. And I want to go to a couple points that you made there, Catherine. First is on city planning, Um, those city planning efforts, making cities more walkable, discouraging driving. Perhaps you put in downtown tolls, uh, bike paths. That stuff is all underway, but it can't be underestimated how important it is. Meanwhile, though, electric cars are starting to make an impact. And um, also, going back to the electric sector, globally, they're really important, A, for reducing emissions, but B, for helping utilities out. And the Bloomberg report showed that electric cars by 2040 will add up to 8% of our total electricity use. So assuming the grid is a lot cleaner, which is what Bloomberg is saying— Fossil fuels have peaked. By then, we're looking at a cleaner transportation sector, and uh, you know, a way to make up for lost electricity sales for utilities. So that's a that's a good trend worth highlighting in the transportation sector.
1: Yeah, the only thing is, one thing we have to do on EVs, at least in the short term, is to raise the cap of two hundred thousand vehicles per manufacturer for the tax credit, because we do need to incentivize more people to purchase them, at least over the next few years. So is that going to happen? I don't know. The OEMs are all in different places on it and also in different trajectories on their electric vehicle deployment. But I guess it
2: could. I, you know, I think when you think about how we got here on renewable energy, it really came from good policy within the renewable portfolio standards, as Michael Polsky pointed out, and, you know, and really waiting until the technology got there to really scale up. I think that the plans that we have on the transportation sector are just, not well thought out. I mean, moving from gasoline powered vehicles to electric vehicles, to me, doesn't solve anything. You know, we really need to tackle, as you said earlier, Stephen, in terms of city planning, the whole concept of car ownership. And we have to move away from personal car ownership such that, you know, we move away from a resource that, you know, is probably the most underutilized resource in the world, which is You know, cars, they they they're driving only about three to four percent of the of the time. The other 96 percent of the time they're sitting somewhere parked. Yeah. And
0: I guess the question is, are you seeing any companies that are solving this? You do have the car sharing companies, but they're not really tackling this problem in the way you've identified it. Do you think the large auto manufacturers will come up with a solution to this?
1: Wait, to stopping driving?
0: Well, no. Look, I mean, BMW is jumping into car sharing. Um, A number, like Ford is jumping into car sharing. These are companies that have signaled a willingness to embrace this sector, even though it's so far incremental. Um, You know, I wonder if, if there is a push toward services and not just throwing out
2: more cars. And,
0: and well, I, you think, know, I see some signs that that is underway.
2: I think DC has done a great job of this. So I think in the late 90s, DC realized that it wanted to move away from personal car ownership. They still haven't talked about it publicly. But what they did was they quietly removed the requirement for all new condo buildings to actually add parking spots. Um, and so you basically have an enormous shortage of parking spots in DC. And what they did instead was you know, give away some of the existing parking spots for cash to folks like Car2Go, right, which is a car sharing service that you know is owned by Mercedes Benz, um, and and I think you're starting to see in D.C. you know folks just believe that they don't need a personal car um, to live in D.C. and and I think that I think that that integration within city planning is what's necessary um, to get to the finish line. I don't think you can get rid of personal car ownership without um, a real plan in place from the municipalities.
1: Yeah. And I would say DC does, they've put in a lot of bike lanes. They've done a really good job making it a lot safer for bikers. They're trying now to invest in Metro. I mean, the issue is Metro is, is completely dysfunctional right now. And it shows you what happens when you stop public transportation and all these people are now driving in and it's just completely unworkable right now. But I think one of the things we have to think about when we have local planning um, and city government trying trying to come up with transportation solutions is that, for example, Arlington County, where I live, has done a really, really good job of making a walkable community. However, because of that and because they've done all this mixed use development, it has pushed a lot of the low and lower middle income folks out of the ability to stay in Arlington. It's become very, very pricey to live there. And now those people are living out in the burbs and having to drive in. So really, when you talk about people who are having to commute, sometimes it hits the population that has the least ability to handle tolls and other issues, you know, other policies that we might put into place to try to reduce driving.
0: One last trend I want to talk about. This is, to me, the most important one. In our discussion with Michael Polsky, he was talking about why wind has trouble competing with existing generation sources. And he was making an argument for the PTC in the short term. Wind is very competitive with new generation sources, but you know, you're know you're, you pay- you're competing with plants that have paid off all their costs, aside from ongoing fuel costs. And the NEF, Bloomberg, points out that by around 2027, new wind and solar... Is going to be cheaper in a lot of markets than running existing coal and gas power plants and that's a huge development and what they say is well you remember that golden age of gas that the iea predicted in 2011 that's probably not going to happen and we do have a lot of gas so we're still going to be using natural gas for many decades to come but iea you know four or five years ago said that gas was going to dominate worldwide and said it was going to be the cheapest source of energy around the world. And Bloomberg is saying, nope, sorry. It doesn't matter whether it's an existing plant or a new plant. Wind and solar will will kill it on costs in a lot of markets.
2: Well, and we predicted this on the energy gang to be clear, right? I mean, like this golden age of gas was a crock to begin with for a long time. I mean, when you look at LNG and the export terminals, the landed cost of LNG is something on the order of $7 a million BTU at the cheapest, and probably closer to 10. Um, and so there's no way that that gas at $7 a million BTU can actually compete with um, solar and wind.
0: Finally, we are going to talk transmission. We all know we need more of it. But when it comes to building projects, opposition can be fierce. 12 years ago, 11 utilities in the Midwest banded together to create CapEx 2020, a collaboration to build 800 miles of transmission lines in the Dakotas, in Minnesota, and Wisconsin. By next year, the lines will be fully built out, helping support wind projects in the region. And they avoided, through this uh, collaborative, a lot of the opposition that developers usually face for these lines. A new report from the University of Minnesota details how the collaborative was formed and how it could inform future transmission projects. Catherine, you flagged this one for us. What's interesting about this collaborative to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, the fact that 11 utilities could get together and come up with a way to um, study what they needed. They came up with this broken window design, which uh, is also better known as my iPhone screen, um, that has, you know, where all the different lines have to go. It looks like a broken window. Um, and they've they changed laws and regulations so much. of. Transmission is about planning, siting, permitting, cost allocation. So they were able to come together and remove some of those barriers to get this done. So it's pretty remarkable that because it takes quite a long time to. Uh, do all of those plan, all of the planning around transmission, and not to mention all the other barriers in the forms of, you know, bird, bat, eagle, sage grouse, all these regulations um, and the NIMBY issues. I think they were able to get around a lot of those by collaboration and working with communities, working with the legislators and regulators.
0: Yeah, the NIMBY issue, they they really did a, a good job of addressing that because they from day one it sounded like they. They were talking to landowners. They went to public meetings, they took out ads in local media. And you know, this, this was really designed to avoid many of the battles in the '70s and '80s that we saw over transmission lines. But you know, we still see many issues. The, the Northern Pass Project, for example, in northern New England has been a really major problem. I mean, that you know, there's fierce opposition up there for those new transmission lines to bring hydro from Canada into northern New England. And even though you're bringing clean energy across the border, and many people would support that, the, the ability to site these lines has been compromised because it sounds like they really haven't worked with landowners in the same way. So you still see these problems.
2: A lot to learn from this collaboration. Well, I mean, look at Colorado, which has been a um, a complete mess, you know, when Lewis Bacon owns an enormous ranch out there and basically successfully single-handedly fought off the transmission line from Tri-State. I, I think that this partnership um, for this transmission line was pretty damn impressive and, and, and something that um, really is the is set of skills that needs to be taught to the rest of the industry around the country um, around how collaboration really does achieve good results but I do think in New York it's very important to note that that New York State had a really large process that included all of the stakeholders and they failed to come to an agreement right this this latest um, transmission project with NYSIG and NYPA is what was left after the massive you know, transmission partnership from six, seven years ago fell apart.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. And then I want you to go back and tell us what that partnership was supposed to be. So the tr- project you're referring to is one that was just completed. Um, they basically combined two transmission lines between New York Electric and Gas and New York Power Authority. And... It's designed to open up new capacity so that they can bring a lot of wind from upstate to downstate. And they were hailing this as a major collaborative effort uh, that would be needed to help New York get 50% renewables by 2030. Definitely an important project. But you're saying, Jigger, that this is is a small development compared to what New York had planned years ago?
2: Yeah. I mean, there was a big task force put together, and the goal was to create— you know, basically sufficient transmission capacity such that you could shut down, um, um, Indian Point and bring in, you know, cheap hydro from, um, Hydro-Quebec, right? And, and, you know, and then, and then the flip side actually, you know, support an offshore wind farm off the coast of Lipa. And I mean, all of these sort of interesting projects and, and everyone was part of it and they still are. It's called New York Transco, um, but after, you know, just a lot of infighting and, and, and figuring out who was supposed to pay for what and how much, you know, how much cost was responsible to each party, um, the larger vision for up, upgrading the entire transmission system in New York really wasn't um, pursued. I mean, and so, so individual partners said, well, these are two things that we can collaborate on, so let's just get this piece of the transmission be done, and that is exactly what's happening today. Most of the transmission projects outside of this one in the Midwest are these sort of two hundred line projects, you know, um, a, a hundred mile project, a fifty mile project. And you do have some exceptions, like in ERCOT's territory, where they've added, you know, these creases for 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 wind. But in general, I would say that you know the the, the benefits of bringing together a nationwide alliance of transmission and. And how FERC basically was given all these extra powers in 2007 during the Energy Policy Act and all these other things really hasn't translated into a pathway by which we create a nationwide seamless transmission.
1: Well, yeah, but there are three different ways to build transmission or to think about transmission. One is to figure out how you can defer having to build it because it is so difficult. So a project like at Presidio, Texas, where they used a battery instead of having to upgrade the transmission line to keep a line reliable. The second is to get more from your existing infrastructure, which is exactly what they did with this Marcy South project in New York, where they added two capacitor banks and a lot of smart grid technology to add 440 megawatts taking power from upstate to downstate New York, which allows them to be aware of the conditions, use the energy more efficiently. And then the third is to big build, build big lines, which is great when you have a lot of land and you have utilities that want to invest in big systems. They're really good at that. But you need a lot of land. You need straight lines. Congestion is better served probably by either doing number one, deferring, or number two, getting more from, from the existing
0: do regional collaboratives or regional markets that have been formed change the way that we plan and site transmission? I mean, you had a lot of smaller and mid-sized utilities band together to create this uh, collaborative in the Midwest, but now we have more regional authorities, and you know that, that takes away the need for these utilities to, to create an ad hoc coalition.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in, with Order 1000 FERC issued, um, in the two thousand and ten, they started their process of rulemaking, and this has required regions to get together and do both regional and interregional planning and One of the things they are required to do is look at alternatives to transmission because they simply have to you cannot build big transmission lines every in every part of the country
2: right, but I, I mean I just want to make sure that we 're clear about the fact that this is a failure. Right. I mean, at the time at which the George Bush administration gave all these extra rights to the FERC to try to, you know, sort of relieve congestion via transmission projects. And they had all these designations and the PGM was going to use them and all this stuff. Then the financial crisis happened. Obama came into office. I remember being in the room during the the transition sessions where they said, we are going to make transmission a priority and all this other stuff, and largely, most of that stuff has failed miserably. And when you talk to scientists, what they'll say to you is that the easiest way to go to 100% renewable energy in this country is to have massive transmission capacity to bring solar power out of the deserts and wind from the Midwest into the populated areas, And, and I mean, that's all a pipe dream. It's not gonna happen.
0: Totally agree. People have talked about transmission in that context for a long time, And I think we need to evolve our thinking on this. Um, I will say, I think it would be great to see utilities that are banding together and creating a collaborative to try to avoid transmission development.
1: Yeah, it's easier to do that at load centers, uh, closer to the load where you can do distributed energy. But when you're trying to move wind from a Western state to a load center, you still need lines.
0: All right, it's time to wrap up the show. And we will try to tell you something you do not know. Catherine, what's your story?
1: Yeah, so yesterday afternoon, I spent the day with about 80 other folks at the White House, where the White House hosted a a summit on smart markets to scale renewable energy and storage. And it's terrific that the White House is still working on this. They're still um, doubling down on research and development, grants, facilitating partnerships. Um, The... Air Force and General Services Administration announced um, new projects and RFIs to really do agency-level deployments of clean energy, especially storage and other technologies. So I was there for the Advanced Energy Management Alliance, which does demand response. But this was all about competitive market access for all these technologies, data access, and transparency of process. And I would also um, invite everybody to look up the Council of Economic Advisors just issued a report as well out of the White House. So this was really good to see this happening. So the White House is still working. They are still working. <laughs> I mean, the
0: fact that they're, you know, pulling the military together to reuse submarine batteries and to think about storage more broadly for their operations, and that the GSA is now asking for proposals to use storage to manage energy costs—like that's a pretty big deal.
1: Yes, yes, and evidently in Hollywood, they're using old Nissan car batteries to pack. Pass- the movie sets, rather than diesel gensets, which I thought was also kind of a nice visual. Hmm.
0: Excellent, Jager. What's your story?
2: Well, as many of you know, um, you know I've been a big fan of this, you know, sort of building automation, big data, continuous commissioning stuff, because the technology has shown that commercial buildings can really. Um, save, you know, between six and 12% of their electricity fairly easy with just some sensors. Um, And so I'm, you know, really, I was really heartened to see that NYSERDA became the first uh, group in the country to put together a systematic program to support the rollout of these technologies, because even though they have less than six to 12 month paybacks, a lot of folks are not actually implementing them. And so NYSERDA allocated 30 million bucks to the commercial real time energy management program. You know, to cost share between 20 and 30 percent of the cost of um, implementing these systems. So, you know, really good news piggybacking on NYPA's um, award from Green Tech Media around doing the same thing for state buildings. I want to
0: finish by calling out a piece on LinkedIn from Paul Geip, who reported on a vertical axis wind project in Germany that had been taken down. And this is a rooftop project. You know, back in 2007, 2008, we saw this resurgence in interest for vertical axis wind. And a lot of the old guard in the wind industry were saying what hogwash it was. But because solar was expensive and people who didn't know much about energy were clamoring for these cool new gadgets, we saw a lot of investment in vertical axis wind. And largely those projects have been pretty dismal failures and a high-profile project that went dark in Germany has finally been taken down. And it's just one more example of why vertical access wind, particularly for rooftops, where you have a very very volatile resource, is just a terrible, terrible idea. So shout out to Paul for a good piece calling that project out. That marks the end of the show. Thanks to Solar Edge for their support. We really appreciate it. And thanks to all of our listeners. We appreciate you. If you want to suggest show ideas or provide feedback, reach us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. You can also find us on Twitter and subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and whatever podcast app you choose. We will see many of you at Grid Edge Live next week. We've got our editor-in-chief, Eric Wessoff joining the three of us. And we're going to talk about uh, some failures in home energy management, some problems with fuel cells, and we'll have some really good news for you as well. That'll be a fun conversation. Hope to see many of you at the show, and if not, then we'll have the show on this feed. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreentechMedia.com.